Hi, everybody, and welcome back to another edition of Security Management Highlights. I'm your host, the security guy, Chuck Harold. But clearly, you get into this range now, especially in a post 9-11 environment, of ideological violence that could be targeted against a workplace. Uh, the only tangible, really credible numbers are unfortunately deaths that occur in the workplace. And, and for women, it's about the number, I believe, and again, it's by memory, it's the number two cause of death was uh, workplace violence in the workplace for, them, for women. All that and more on this month's edition of Security Management Highlights. Steve Commando, MACTM, is a principal at Behavioral Science Applications, LLC, in the greater New York area. He consults on behavioral threat management, anti-terrorism, and crisis intervention to the law enforcement, corporate, and private security communities. Mr. Steve, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Well, thanks for having me back, Chuck. I appreciate the opportunity. I always love talking to you. You really get the old brain cells going. Today, we're going to talk about ideological extremism, conspiracy theories, and workplace violence. Huge topic. Let's start by kind of defining some of these things, right? And specifically, when we talk about ideological extremism, QAnon comes up, right? That's kind of the, the thing that's in the news now. You know, who or what is QAnon exactly? Well, you're certainly right, uh, Chuck, that it's been in the news a lot, especially going back to the uh, the situation at the Capitol on the 6th of January. A lot of folks noticed watching imagery that there were a lot of people in QAnon t-shirts and QAnon flags and all of that. And it's, it's a really good question. QAnon is not necessarily an organization. It is more of a theory and you know became much more of an ideology over time, uh, but it is not a, a group per se. You know, it's, it's interesting when we think about ideologies and extremism, especially right now during this time of a pandemic, a really good example is uh, of something like a, of a public health emergency. And we think about um, maybe something like malaria, uh, which is a disease and the vector that spreads the disease is the mosquito. When we think about QAnon and these, these extreme ideologies, they're much more like that infection. They're not something you know, where people could go and meet and go to a QAnon meeting and such and, and be organized in that way. They really require a host. And the host becomes a lot of these you know, kind of groups and individuals that we typically think of as being these extremist groups. And a lot of them are kind of um, white supremacist groups, things like the Boogaloo Boys, Proud Boys, um, Oath Keepers, Three Percenters, folks that typically we think about as having a very, you know, one particularly, you know, ideological bent. But they're not a group per se. No one really signs up for or goes uh, and joins or uh, a QAnon organization. They're very decentralized in that way. It's much more of an idea than a group. You know, that's a very interesting point. If we don't have a centralized dissemination of information, speak to me about how this information is spread and why people are so inclined to believe it. The brain itself is logical, right? It wants to find patterns. What I find in reading a lot of this material is it's very, very logical, Steve. You know, it's, it's based on some kind of fact, usually. There's a historic fact behind it. There's a statute. There's an ordinance. There's something that's factual. And at first glance, you go, oh, yeah, that's, that's a real law. Title USC says this. And then your brain just goes with it and fills in all these patterns. Talk to us about the organics of the brain and why it, it wants to go find answers to things. Well, this, this happens at a couple levels, Chuck. One is, as you're indicating, this kind of pattern-seeking behavior, and especially when things around us are chaotic as they've been, 
Um, we want certainty. A lot of anxiety in life for people comes out of uncertainty. They're not knowing what's going to happen next or how this is all going to turn out. Uh, so people want to understand and they want some certainty. So we have this tendency to start observing, simply observing patterns or different facts. And, you know, we build ourselves a case or an explanation. Now, to your point, most conspiracy, you know, uh, uh, sort of conspiracy theories actually are, have some kernel of truth, right? So as you said, you could find something in the law or some historic reference that you can go, aha, look, here it is, here's the thing. Now, I want you to think about this slightly differently before I go deeper into the brain. If we think about foreign terrorism, and we think perhaps about um, a jihadist sort of terrorist and someone who's been introduced to this very radical uh, form of Islam, or any, actually any religious-based uh, terrorism, you have probably maybe grown up in the culture. You've probably read the, you know, the, the holy books a million times. You've probably sat in services your whole life, maybe since you're a kid. And you know all these things, but now you meet a radical cleric, someone who reinterprets for you all the things you know, reinterprets them through a different filter and says, listen, if you're reading this correctly, you'll understand that in this religious text, it, it calls perhaps for violence. So as a parallel, you can have someone who say, well, listen, you went to school here in the States and you know all about the constitution and American history, but you didn't get it straight. No one ever leveled with you and told you what was really going on. There's a whole deeper story that's been hidden for you for all these nefarious reasons. So there's this basis in truth that we all know and it gets reinterpreted now in a way that kind of suits or fuels this other level of thinking. Now, you also have to remember that not everybody buys the conspiracy theories. Some set of people listen to it and say, that's malarkey, that doesn't make sense to me, um, you know, and they're gonna outright reject it. But the seeker, right? Someone who is seeking this certainty, this understanding and hasn't gotten it through traditional means these things start to become more satisfying. Now at the deep brain level, one of the things that's really interesting is when we start to think about uh, someone who could justify using extreme action to advance their belief or defend their belief, we, we know that this actually starts to involve a specific part of the brain, uh, technically is known as the nucleus accumbens, but it's part of the pleasure reward system. And it's, especially in males, this is what the brain science says, it creates this reward system that when people are thinking about altruistic punishment, punishment in which they think other people deserve this, they deserve, you know, to be hurt in some way, they deserve to be thrown out of office, they deserve the building damage, whatever it is, it creates this very, very, at a neuroscience level, very, uh, kind of powerful loop, reinforcement loop in the brain that as people talk about it and they get fired up about it and they plan for it, it reinforces and it becomes that much more powerful for them, especially when other voices join the chorus. So there is kind of a bunch of things that are going on simultaneously. There is the kind of pattern seeking tendency we have uh, when we're trying to make sense of things, and, and that feels good when we start to understand, it reduces our anxiety because we're not grasping for you know, thin air. Uh, and then that gets reinforced once we think we've found that idea, especially when tell, people start to tell us that we could do something about it. 
So that's kind of the pathway, the neuroscience level from radicalization to mobilization. Radicalization being a change in thoughts and opinions and attitudes and mobilization being a, you know, a change in action. And someone now who has this action imperative and feels a, a call to arms, as it were. So is there a difference between conspiracy theories and political gaslighting, right? Because, you know, let, let's face it, uh, one man's fact patterns, another man's conspiracy theories. The bad guys think they're good guys. It, it, it kind of goes both ways on that. So split this down the middle for me and tell me how we separate this, because it's really confusing to the brain to understand a politician saying, oh, that didn't happen when it did. And somebody saying there's a conspiracy theory as to why it happened. So that is tough stuff. And I have to tell you, you know, there's this, we're introduced the idea too of delusional thinking uh, that may be a part of this. And it's very, very hard to separate. But one of the things that makes it so hard to separate, Chuck, and people have said this to me because there's been a lot of writing about families that have actually been somewhat ruined by QAnon when one family member or the other gets deeply involved in this idea and is, you know, immovable uh, by other family members trying to argue with facts or logic and so forth, to your point, is that this is really has to do with a value set. And then what people do, and it's a specific cognitive uh, bias called confirmation bias, people continue to look for, listen for others who support them. So on this idea of, is it gaslighting or, uh, you know, something else, it kind of depends on the person's original starting place because if you hold a deep value to one extreme or the other of this you're looking for you're listening for things whether they're just confirmation or supporting facts that people offer you to build your case for you and you have to remember one of the things that's very unique for us right now chuck that wasn't really part of the discourse years ago um is both cellular communication and social media platforms where now and even the way our our, our broadcast networks have become People lock into a, a media channel, um, an information stream that's totally self-reinforcing. So they're only hearing other voices that feed this. And maybe at the very beginning of that process, there was some element of gaslighting, maybe there's some element of, um, again, manipulation. But once it takes root and the person has that value, which is kind of the fertilizer for this or the, you know, the Petri dish for this, puts it in that environment where it's just takes off it just grows because it gets fed more and more and more of the same it just reinforces those thought patterns and yeah, honestly there's a whole brain science discussion to be had about this but it's it becomes very very entrenched and the more you repeat it uh, the more you hear other people repeat it the more you see validation because look at all the other people who are thinking like i do um it gets very difficult to extinguish. So there may be some element of gaslighting and it's very it's very hard to, to distinguish, you know, especially with individuals, organizations that are skillful in manipulating messages. Uh, it would be almost impossible to truly tease it apart back to its root source. But gaslighting certainly is a, a strategy in this sort of disinformation and it's probably very effective in this environment um, which has been a very chaotic environment, not just in the political domain, but if we think of all the other crises around the country in 2020, from wildfires to hurricanes to civil unrest, you know, it's an absolutely chaotic 
time in which people are looking for certainty, you know, something that seems solid. And if someone holds this up or a group holds this up and prevents it, you know, presents it as viable and can whip up a fact pattern, uh, even if it's fairly abstract, um, there's going to be people in that environment who are very ripe to grab onto something uh, and they grab onto this and it just gets reinforced, reinforced from there. So gaslighting is probably an element of it, but I don't think it's causal. I think it's something that uh, accelerates it probably. You hit on a good point there. It, it, you didn't say the word, but we've talked about the word before. We have a lot of echo chambers, right? So we're self-validating. You have your friend validate what you just read and he just read the same thing. And that makes it seem you know, better somehow. It's interesting. A lot of parallels to the incel community that you and I have talked about before, right? Where we get inside these groups. Yeah, absolutely. And we... very, yeah, it's very, very insular. I mean, you think about the, the parallels to incels. It's a very, very narrow world. It's people with a similar grievance. Uh, they bounce it off each other all day and all night in these uh, internet forums. And, you know, through repetition and validation from others, it becomes very, very real. And the same sort of thing happens in these other conspiracies where you start to probably narrow your set of friends because other people don't want to hear it after a while. So all the people around you in the real world validate your, your fact pattern. Uh, all the people you listen to in your media channels, whether they're, you know, new media or broadcast media, they validate this. And then when you can look out and see, um, you know, marches and rallies of people who look like you, feel like you, think like you, it further validates that this stuff must be real um, and that you are right. And people ultimately, at the end of the day, for ego and other reasons, want to want to be right. They don't want to think of themselves as being uh, misled or, or naive. So there's a lot of different psychological forces that kind of make this stuff solidify. And when it does, it can be very unshakable. It's really difficult to move someone from their, you know, this way of thinking. You, know, you hit on a very interesting point there. When people become immovable and nobody wants to be wrong. My experience is people don't join groups because they say, Hey, you know, I want to join that group because it's the worst group possible ever that I've ever thought of. They think all groups they belong to are the best groups, right? You and I both know all world solutions are in the middle where people are reasonable and they can have a conversation. But if you're on either side of extremism, I, I don't see much of a difference between a political ideological extremism or conspiracy extremism. Is, is there a difference? Well, there's probably a lot of overlap. I don't know that they're necessarily different. You know, it's really like, what is the view? If you think about extremists, right, the extremist by definition is that individual who is willing to, to use violence to either advance their cause or defend their cause. They're people who tend to be more at the fringe. You know, they're, if we were to draw a bell curve, you'd have some people on the shallow end of the bell curve who have no uh, imperative towards action. They just maybe hold this belief. And there's a big, the big middle, as you said, on this bell curve are people who maybe hold the belief and can get riled up by it. And then at the other end of this bell curve is a very small statistical set of the, the most, um, you know, the most died in the world, the, the real hardcore true believers. And the true believer comes to think that if you really are the true believer, then action is required. And that action may be violence. And that's where we start to get into you know, extremism into, into, you know, violence and terrorism. Um, when we think about that spectrum of people, 
what drives them is very blurry because some of, you know, to, to go off slightly, um, there's probably a pretty fine line in that subset of people, the extremists, of individuals who may even be struggling uh, with mental health issues. I mean, we know that uh, a lone actor terrorist compared to a group-based terrorist is 13 and a half times more likely to have a mental illness. So there are people who may be already entertaining delusional thought or having difficulty really critically thinking or separating reality who get even further swayed. Now, I'm not saying that that's, you know, the, the majority of people in this extremist camps, but because of that, you're in a range now in the extremist thought where facts actually don't matter as much anymore because it becomes so, so driven by value. And maybe the value right now in, in extreme right or left, I mean, if we could look at both on the extreme right would be, you know, the QAnon ideas that there's a deep state and the government is corrupt and the, the whole government needs to be uh, overturned to be more aligned with constitutional thought. That would be the far right extreme. On the far left, the other sorts of uh, more socialist leaning anarchists believe in general all government needs to be abolished because hierarchy in society suppresses human potential and we, we don't want to have any uh, leaders and we don't want to have any structure. Um, both are very, very extreme sorts of views. Uh, but, you know, the people who, who move on these, who are mobilized as opposed to just radicalized, are those true believers in which it ties back to an extremely deeply held value set. And that's really what's motivating from, so, you know, it's kind of like the value set is the, the kindling and then all this other chatter on the internet or other things that people are hearing that are influencing them, you know, tends to be the spark. But you need something underneath that. You need that fuel of the values really for this to take off. And so you have people in the fringes who not just hold the values that the group have, but they hold them so deeply and so extremely that they feel that there's an action imperative that they must defend them or they must advance them through the use of violence. Very well said. You really focused my view on this. I really think I have a better understanding of, of what the triggers are here. Do these groups fall under one of the workplace violence definitions? Because as you said, it's not really an organization. It's a little, it's vague. It's, it's an ideology. Where, where does this fall under workplace violence? We know what the result is when they act out, but before we get there, how can we help identify them in the workplace violence setting? Well, Chuck, for a long time, I've been advocating, certainly with the folks I work with and anyone I, I can, uh, you know, I can uh, share this with is that OSHA historically has held that there's four types of workplace violence. And I actually think what you're discussing, and it's a very real risk, uh, actually represents a fifth. I mean, the classic four, four types of OSHA workplace violence are, you know, type one, which is a stranger, like a robbery at a convenience store sort of thing. Type two is usually from a, a patient, a client, or a customer. So it's very highly represented in places like healthcare. Type three is the classic thing that we all think of, like the disgruntled employee, current or former employee uh, acting out on some perceived grievance. And type four is domestic violence that typically follows someone to work. But clearly, you get into this range now, especially in a post 9-11 environment, of ideological violence that could be targeted against a workplace. At, a, at one simple level, it could be violence from uh, a single issue extremist group like um, uh, environmental extremists, 
or animal rights extremists against a biotech company, something like that. But then you have extremism like the attack on the the first attack on the uh, Charlie Hebdo uh, to you know to jihadi uh, terrorists uh, who attacked this because of their ideological belief that you know they're they're. Uh, they were being offended by the publication. We could look at the violence at um, San Bernardino of the husband and wife pair who were truly radicalized into a you know, foreign terrorist ideology. And this was a workplace. I mean, granted it was off site that day for the meeting they were having and the holiday party, but it came to a workplace. So this type five workplace violence, Chuck, is exactly to your question, the intersection of workplace violence and terrorism or workplace violence and extremism. And the attack is really driven by perception of enrage against what the company does or what the company represents. And, you know, I use an example, it's not far afield, I don't think, which was the attack on um, federal judge Esther Salas's house in uh, New Jersey over the summer in which her son was killed at the door and her husband was shot badly by a, um, someone like an incel by an individual who was an extreme men's rights activist who had a beef with this just judge and showed up her home dressed as a FedEx employee or a delivery person and, um, and let loose. And so there is this place, and I think this is a real concern because we're getting into a much more ideologically charged environment. And I don't think employers are doing themselves or their employees a favor by thinking of ideological violence or terrorism or extremism as a as a different thing and just orienting employees around those classic four types of workplace violence because at the same time you're teaching employees about the warning signs perhaps of the other classic forms of workplace violence i think we should also be helping employees understand uh, what are the indicators of radicalization that the coworker next to me isn't just someone who's teed off because they got passed over for promotion, but all this guy will talk about is, you know, his ideology and his conspiracy theory, and he's really making people uncomfortable. And, you know, he's hinted about guns and such. Should that not also get an employee's attention and maybe be, you know, fed upstream to, to management? I think so. So to me, I've been watching this for, for quite a while. And it seems that there really is a, a clear fifth type of workplace violence, which is exactly to this point, ideologically driven. So I think more than ever, this is a time in the, really the relationship between public sector and private sector organizations that we all need to be discussing this sort of extremism, including what it looks like as a separate form of workplace violence because employees ultimately are always the eyes and ears uh, in terms of being early detection for someone who may be on a pathway towards this sort of violence. And they need to understand that the warning behaviors, they probably don't look like the classic warning behaviors of someone um, thinking about workplace violence. You know, this, uh, this ideological thought is something different and there's a risk in it becoming normalized when all around us we hear you know, these very, very uh, fiery voices in the media and in public discourse. It kind of normalizes this this level of, um, you know, kind of, of extreme ideology. So people maybe are getting a little desensitized to it, but they need to understand that in the workplace, 
these may be indicators of someone who's moving towards potential ideologically driven violence. Steve Cremando, every time I speak to you, I feel simultaneously more informed and a little more anxious. It's the uh, it's the next flavor of the day in workplace violence, as far as I'm concerned. I'm with you, Chuck, and it's always good being here and speaking with you. Thanks so much for the opportunity. And thanks for coming on Security Management Highlights, my friend. Michael A. Crane Esquire, CPP, is the CEO of SecureRisks.com, a security consultancy specializing in security and threat assessments, risk management, and corporate investigations. Michael is also an original member of the ASIS Guidelines Commission, the ASIS Council Vice President Six-Pack, and the Crime and Loss Prevention Council Chairman. Michael has served ASIS for over 32 years. Mr. Michael, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thank you, sir. Always a pleasure to speak with you. You always have such good insight. Today, I'm sure, will be no exception because this is a really a new emerging issue in the security field. If you bring your workplace home, most of the same rules you have at work apply there. Tell us about this. Workplace violence, you know, has been around for a very long time. Annually, 2 million workers experience workplace violence. And a half a million employees miss 1.2 million workdays annually due to workplace violence. Becomes very expensive because out-of-court settlements average over $500,000 and jury verdicts average about $3 million. And those are not necessarily covered by insurance. So when you talk about workplace violence in today's environment, what we're talking about for the most part is as having employees working remotely. So when they're working remotely, the majority of them are working out of their residence or out of their houses. And so when you start talking about workplace violence at someone's residence, for the most part, what you're talking about is domestic violence issues that pop up. And so the question becomes one of liability for the employer and or the security department. And the question is, are they aware of it? Are they put on notice that something is going on at the employee's residence or house while they're working? And so that's the big issue is that uh, you have to be put on notice and be told about it. And when you think about domestic violence, it goes through a cycle. And for the most part, the employee is pretty hesitant to report that they're experiencing uh, domestic violence. However, when the employer is told about it, then they have a number of very limited options of what to do because they are put on notice that their employee is potentially a victim of potential violence. So they can either, if they have facilities, move that person to a facil- another facility, try and relocate that person if they can. But those are pretty limited as far as options to consider. Uh, if there's an incident of workplace violence at the facility where they work, uh, then there's all kinds of other options of moving that person, having them park at a specific place. But if you're talking about domestic violence, certainly the uh, the spouse or the significant other knows where that person is and is in fact potentially living in the right in the same place. Uh, so uh, remote work certainly has uh, benefits, but it also has potential liabilities. OSHA has about four definitions of workplace violence. Is working remotely emerging as a fifth definition of workplace violence? Basically, the four types of workplace violence, just to back up a second, is one is a criminal act, which is the majority of uh, workplace violence. That's robberies at 7-Elevens, et cetera. You have customer, patient, worker and worker, and then personal relationships. And what we're talking about now are those personal relationships that are occurring at the residence. Uh, OSHA really doesn't have 
rules or regulations, uh, workplace violence falls under their general duty clause that just says that an employer has to provide a safe haven for their, uh, for their employees uh, for recognizable risks. And workplace violence has been defined as a recognizable uh, potential risk of violence. So uh, in answer to your question, I don't know if necessarily OSHA will come up with anything. They'll just uh, keep going the way they are. And then when, uh, unfortunately, uh, incidents do occur where an employee uh, is seriously injured or uh, death occurs, that's when OSHA really comes down on it. Well, those are fair points. So let's use OSHA's definitions. For the employer, what's their best response? Are we talking employee awareness, training, policies, procedures? Well, I don't know about policy. I think... You know, typically what you're trying to do is uh, prevent workplace violence from occurring. And so when you're talking about employees exhibiting behavior that's unusual, uh, the training goes into reporting it to uh, your supervisor or manager, additional training to managers and supervisors once they either experience or view it or being told about it, what to do about it. And then the executive level as to how to handle it and policies and procedures. Those requirements or those policies about reporting it would also apply uh, when you're working remotely. The, the whole idea is that when you either experience workplace violence or observing workplace violence or potential violence in the workplace, you report it. And then once it's reported, the victim has done what they're supposed to do for the, to their employers reporting it. And then it shifts the burden to the manager or supervisor to bring it up the chain of command so that things can be done. Most employers should have a threat management team, a multidisciplinary team to evaluate potential threats so that when uh, a report is made by, by an employee who's working remotely, it goes to this threat management team to evaluate and make some determinations as to causes of act, courses of action to take by the employer, what we can do to prohibit and prevent potential violence to the employee. If it's an act of aggression against an employee from a third party, getting law enforcement involved, the court system involved, et cetera. What do our statistics look like for this new workplace violence challenge? Only really tangible numbers that you can put fingers on, unfortunately, are homicides that occur in the workplace. You know, there are millions of threats and uh, physical assaults that take place, fights in the workplace throughout the United States. But uh, uh, the only tangible, really credible numbers are unfortunately deaths that occur in the workplace. And from workplace violence, that it averages about 500 deaths a year. And for women, it's about the number, I believe, and again, it's by memory, it's the number two cause of death was uh, workplace violence in the workplace for, them, for women. Any advice you might be able to give to employers with this, in this new, uh, new workplace environment? Uh, just, the, just the basically training and refreshers that uh, all employees really should go through about potential workplace violence, behaviors to observe, and uh, for remote learning, remote uh, working, it's a matter of uh, saying something. Uh, you know, the saying, if you see something, say something. Well, if you're experiencing domestic violence and uh, it's occurring 
uh, at your residence, uh, say something to your employer so that it, so uh, response can take place. The three things are uh, when you talk about training for uh, workplace violence prevention, you're talking about prevention and training, res uh, response, and then recovery. And so those are the things that uh, should be in foremost in the employer's mind. And the training is notifying their employees that when they're working remotely, if they're experiencing any potential workplace violence to report it. My guest has been Michael Crane, Esquire's CPP CFE. He's a security consultant and attorney at securerisks.com. Mr. Michael, always a pleasure to speak with you. Check in again soon. Let us know what's happening in this world because it's certainly an evolving and emerging trend. So thanks again for coming on Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thank you, Chuck, for having me. Appreciate it.